Well, again, because it is a, a, a decent length chapter, um, it'll be good to follow along just so you can kind of keep pace with where we're at. Um, there's, there's, there's a whole lot here. I, I, to be, as you know, I always struggle with, with how much to do. And in, a normal, in a normal setting, I would have broken this up into a few sermons probably, but there's just no breaking this one up. It all needs to go together, which I think we'll, we'll see by the end. So, so we're just going to have to make good progress. So that, that's what we'll do. Um, and we'll set the context for it in this way. One of, one of the earliest passages from the Bible that I remember learning just, just as a little kid was Proverbs 3.5. And you probably know Proverbs 3.5, at least it'll be familiar to you. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He'll make your paths straight. Uh, for some of us, that, that's probably a familiar proverb. And throughout my life, that proverb has been an encouragement to me. Uh, but I can also say that it's a proverb that's come back around I won't say to haunt me, maybe better to say it's come back around to convict me at, at different seasons, particularly because of that pesky word, all. Right? So, so trust in the Lord with all your heart, and don't lean on your own understanding. In all your ways, acknowledge Him, and He'll make your path straight. It's, it's the alls that start to become troubling there, because as life goes on, trusting in the Lord with, with the big stuff, you know, I understand that. We understand that with, with all my heart, at least, at least on my best days and by grace, with all my heart, I'm trusting in the Lord for salvation. You know, with all my heart, I'm trusting in the Lord for, for preservation, generally, materially, physically, and the preservation of my family. And in those big categories of life, the alls can make sense for us. Trust in the Lord with all our heart and all our ways acknowledge Him. We, we see how that works out. But trusting in the Lord with all my heart and all my ways, it can get a little tricky because while, while at least most of the time I, I find that I can trust in the Lord with all my heart and all my ways for salvation, for example, those big categories, while I trust in Him in those big categories, uh, there are those other areas which just seem a little bit more peripheral. You know, there are those marginal areas of life. Um, where, where I can feel like, you know, I, I can pretty much take care of things over in that category all by myself. Thank you very much. So, so for example, maybe it's that, it's that one particularly difficult situation. As I, and as I consider what's going on there, uh, Proverbs 3, alls, you know, they, they don't really seem to apply just there. I'll, I'll take care of that one on my own. My own timing, my own way, trusting in my own resources, you know, or, or maybe it's that, it's that one unique relationship that's just rocky, and again, I'll, I'll take care of that one on my own, my own timing, my own way, my own resources, whatever it might be. Um, there are just those peripheral elements in life, after all. And, and so, so, Lord, you know, I, I don't really need you for those. I can take care of, of business in these smaller matters, uh, these situations. You know, my, my personal resilience really seems like a better fit there than, than maybe an expression of faith-filled reliance. So Proverbs 3 comes around to, to get me from time to time because I find myself functionally rewriting it. You know, I slip in that slight exchange where I trust in the Lord with most of my heart and don't lean on my own understanding. And in most of my ways, a good portion of them at least, I'll acknowledge Him and He'll make my path straight. In, in my life, I can find myself making that kind of exchange, you know, exchanging the alls of always relying on the Lord in all ways, in all things, for some of those sometimes sorts of statements. And I expect we can all identify with that on some level. There, there's the main stuff, there's the big stuff, and I'll be trusting in God for that. But then there's the more peripheral stuff, the, the issues in the margins, if you like. And, and I can handle those on my own. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty sure I can just take care of those without any help. Thank you very much. 
Now, now as we come to 1 Samuel chapter 25, it's this um, not just in the big stuff kind of trust that we're helped to think through this morning. It's, a, it's an in all things kind of trust that's worked out for, here, for us here in this passage. And we, and we start to see this as we put chapter 25 right where it belongs in between chapter 24 and chapter 26. So, so if we just think about this for a moment, we remember from last week in chapter 24, David learned the lesson, actually it's the lesson he records in Psalm 57, which he wrote on that occasion, which was, God is the one who will fulfill his purposes for me. That was part of the lesson that David learned last time because we saw in the last chapter that David had the chance to basically finally take the throne for himself. He, he had a chance to kill Saul, who's currently occupying the throne, even though David is the one who's anointed as king now. Uh, he had the chance to kill Saul, who's been hunting him. Uh, David had a clear opportunity to dispose of this enemy, but he didn't. And in that context, we saw how he was struck in his heart, the text said, so his conscience was pricked, and he realized, uh, once again, that Saul is actually anointed by God. And, and so in that context, David refrained from exercising himself in a vengeful kind of way, because David understood that the big promises which God had made to give him the throne of Israel, that David was, was understanding that he, he needed to trust that the Lord would bring that about in his way and in his timing. David didn't need to be vengeful. David didn't need to incur blood guilt. He didn't need to murder Saul. God would be the one who fulfilled his purposes for David in that big framework of, of royal ascension in David's life. And so that was chapter 24. David, David was very much renewed in his trusting in that way. Now, from chapter 24, jump over our chapter, fast forward to chapter 26, and guess what? Saul's out to kill David again. Imagine that. He's out to kill David again, and David has another chance to kill Saul, but he doesn't do it. And why doesn't David kill Saul the next time, well, because this same truth continues to stand. And we'll see this, Lord willing, in our studies next week. But David says in chapter 26 that the Lord's going to be the one to strike Saul down. The Lord's going to take care of this, not me. So, so when it comes to the, the arguably biggest thing in David's life to date, uh, namely the throne has been promised by God to David. Saul, the current king, is out with aggression to find David and kill him. But in, in the context of this biggest thing in David's life, the ascension to the throne of Israel, David is not going to take matters into his own hands and kill Saul. Instead, he's going to trust in the Lord to fulfill his promises and his purposes for him. He's trusting in the Lord in that really big way. However, Right in between these two episodes of David trusting in God and not killing Saul, David has this run-in with this extremely irritating fool, Nabal. And Nabal, he kind of comes to us out of nowhere. We don't know about him. He's not a threat to the throne of David in any way whatsoever. Nabal's just a fool. He, he's insulting when he speaks. His name in Hebrew means foolish. Uh, in, in fact, the, in, in the narrative here, Nabal's wife Nabal's servant and David, they all agree that this is a fitting name for him. So, so it's probably not the name his mom gave him. That would be a little mean of a mom, right? Uh, but, but it's probably the name he started to be known by simply because he was, he was obviously uh, somebody who, who exercised zero wisdom whatsoever. It's a name he'd earned. Um, so in chapter 25, we have this foolish man, Nabal. Now, now, thinking again broadly, when it comes to big stuff, like trusting in the Lord to fulfill his promise to get David to the throne, when it comes to the big stuff, David shows extraordinary restraint and even mercy to Saul, who is his, who is his worst enemy. I mean, he's tried to kill him countless times now in the narrative. But Nabal, 
Nabal's just this peripheral character. He, he's not central. He's just an, an irritant in the margins of David's life. And in the margins, in this irritating margin, David approaches things much differently. In effect, as the events unfold, David's posture is one of saying, I, I don't need to put this in any kind of category of trust in the Lord uh, for this peripheral agitation, this Nabal character. I'm just going to take care of this on my own. For this thing, I'm just going to handle it in my way, in my timing. That's where David's at. And in the course of what's un what unfolds here, what we're brought to see is that, is that trusting in the Lord is not merely a matter of yielding to the Lord and trusting Him for the really big stuff. But instead, trusting in the Lord, and this is a lesson David's going to need to continue to learn, trusting in the Lord is a matter of all, all our heart, all the time, in all things. And we'll see this play out as we, as we get into this text. So, so in this passage, we have a lesson here on what it is to trust in the Lord, even in fringe situations. And, and as we study this today... Um, it may be that this is, a, this is a timely word for you. I, I wonder even right now if there's something that's affecting you in your life. It may be a person. It may be a situation. And it's not the most, uh, the most central or important thing in, in your life of faith. It's not the most critical to your general life trajectory or anything like that. But you find yourself tempted uh, just, just to handle it on your own. It's not really been put in a category of trust. You know, you, you can deal with it on your own. You have the resolve to do so. You have the resources. You can take care of it in your time and in your way. This isn't really a, a trust in the Lord kind of category. This is just, I'm going to take care of business in the way I see fit, and we're just going to get it done kind of category. We, we can have those situations in our life. And a passage like this helps call us back, ultimately, to a fuller expression of faith. We trust in the Lord at all times, not leaning on our own understanding, but in all our ways. We're called by wisdom to acknowledge him, and in that he'll make our paths straight, which we'll see uh, the Lord does for David here. So uh, let's look at the passage together. Again, we're going to have to uh, take big, big leaps and bounds through it, but we're going to start with the first 13 verses, and we're going to gather those verses uh, just under the heading peripheral agitation, peripheral agitation. I don't think in a preaching class you'd get good points for that kind of heading, it's too too wordy, but, but we're going to use it anyway. Peripheral agitation. An annoyance from the outside of your life, you know, just on the margins, which is what we see here. So, so, so as we move through these stories about David, even as we come into chapter 25 here, we, we're constantly reminded at the beginning of each new section of narrative of, of the nature of the current level of hardship that David is facing. So that's a feature of these chapters as we go through them. Most of them start giving us some indicator about the difficulty that David is facing. And this chapter is no different. Uh, and we see this especially because almost out of the blue, we're, we're given some of the saddest news we could be given in that we're told that Samuel the prophet has died. So Samuel has been a central character in so much of this book so far. Uh, Samuel was the last of the judges in Israel. The Lord used him to anoint Saul as king, who was the first king of Israel. And then through Samuel, the Lord condemned Saul for his disobedience, anointed David instead. But Samuel's been a figure that stood for faithfulness among the people of Israel, calling them back to, uh, from their failures to repent and have faith again in, in the Lord. Um, Samuel's been a, a figure who's helped stave off Philistine attacks, all kinds of things. He's been used by God to lead the people. And now Samuel passes. And so it's no surprise that we're told that all of Israel assembled to mourn for him before they bury him by his home. So, so this starts with telling us that Samuel dies. And then we, that's put together 
with the fact that we're also told in verse 1 that David went down to the wilderness of Paran, which might not strike us as that interesting at first, except that the wilderness of Paran is significant because it's way down. It's the wilderness around Sinai. In fact, sometimes you'll notice that a Bible translation might even have a footnote. The, the Greek translation of the Old Testament does this, where they actually make it say Maon there, the same, the same geographical region that we're going to meet Nabal in. They actually change it there because Paran is so far down. Paran is the wilderness area around Sinai where the people of Israel assembled at the beginning of their desert wanderings after Egypt. It's a, it's a place that represents God's provision, to be sure, but it's also a place that reflects separation from God's ultimate promised land of blessing and rest. That was the Sinai wilderness where Israel wandered. So, so, so if we put together what we're told here at the beginning of this chapter, it's actually a fairly potent but dark picture for David in that the prophet who supported him has died. So, so that's a really big deal. Samuel's died. And David isn't just in the wilderness generally, but more than that, he's actually fled from Saul way down into the wilderness around Sinai. So he is like really far from God's promised land of rest right now. So, so that gives us a sense of, of David's present situation. And it might even help us understand what we'll see with David's kind of inflamed agitation as things get going. David is under unique pressure and he's feeling that in a, in a few different ways at the moment. So, so in the end of chapter 24, we remember how Saul had made it sound like he'd quit pursuing David. He, he acted like he was sorry for all the harm he'd caused. Uh, but, but as this chapter opens, we see, see that things are still not okay for David. The pressure's on. Um, if anything, things are even more, more weighty and gloomy for him. And then in verse 2, we're introduced to this businessman from Maon. Uh, we're told he was, he was very rich. He had, so he had thousands of animals. And we're told that he's shearing sheep in Carmel. So, so this is a, a festival-type event in Israel, the the sheep shearing. Uh, the, the rich man's about to get even richer. That's, that's what's going to happen here as he sells all his product. And, and the man's name, like we're told, is Nabal, which again is another word for, for foolish in Hebrew. Um, and it is just worth pointing out that fool in the biblical sense is not the same as naive or unintelligent. I mean, clearly Nabal's able to conduct a productive business here. So fool in the biblical sense isn't the same as, as, as not smart. Uh, but to be fool, a fool in the biblical sense is, is ultimately to have a heart oriented toward behaviors and, and a framework for life that is destructive. And in fact, the same root word for this word fool is, is the root word for the, the Hebrew term collapse or crumble down. You know? Because that's what fools do, don't we? They, 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 don't, they don't ultimately devise plans that stand. <laughs> The fool's life is the life that crumbles. And we see that throughout the Proverbs and things like that. So Nabal, he, he's this fool, as we'll see. And, and Nabal happens to be married to Abigail. And Abigail is the exact opposite of Nabal. So, so the Hebrew text reads very literally that, that, that Abigail, as she's introduced, is of good insight and she's beautiful. She's of good insight. So solid wisdom category terminology is being used there. Abigail is a wise lady and she's beautiful. All the while, verse 3, Nabal is harsh and evil in his dealings. So they're total contrast there. And as events unfold, David hears that Nabal is shearing his sheep. So again, that's a festival kind of time, lots of feasting and profiting. And so as verse 5 tells us, David sends 10 men up to Nabal. And, and, and as they get there, David has instructed them, they're to greet Nabal in a very honorable way, respectful way, which they do. 
In fact, the word there in verse 6, the word shalom or, or peace is repeated three times in the greeting in verse 6. It's a very, a very peaceful, respectful greeting that David instructs his men to bring to Nabal. And then David tells his men to remind Nabal that while his Nabal shepherds were out in the fields, that David's men were the ones who would come up as they interacted in, uh, from time to time. They were the ones who would come up and keep them safe from being attacked. So we remember from earlier places in Samuel, even like chapter 23, the Philistines, they would send out uh, these, these, these raiding parties and steal livestock. Uh, but at some point, uh, David's men had, had come to where Nabal's shepherds were, and, and David's men protected them. So effectively, in fact, verse 7, not a single animal went missing from Nabal's flock, which is something that, that Nabal's servant will later confirm when he talks to Abigail about what went on. These guys were like a shield around us. We totally protected our, our flock. So David sends men up as Nabal is, is reaping the benefit of a full herd of sheep to remind Nabal, you know, David and his men helped make sure this day could happen. And in verse 8, David's men are to ask for this provision. David's got 600 men with him, remember? Uh, he's been out in the wilderness. Nabal's enjoyed their protection. And now, since it's feast time, it's only right that David and his men should, should at least have a portion. So could you please send some food for us? The men are to ask. It's a very reasonable request. In fact, it's, it's totally in keeping with Leviticus 19 and repaying a workman for his wages. In fact, Nabal shouldn't have even had to be asked. He should have just sent stuff to David. But being the fool that he is, instead of offering some of his food, Nabal speaks in this very derogatory way about David right, right out of the gate as he's responding. Uh, so in verse 10, he doesn't call David, uh, address him only by name, but he actually calls him just son of Jesse there. You see that? Who is David, this son of Jesse? Of course, he knows who he is if he can speak about who his dad is. But, but if you remember from, from the trajectory of things so far, David gets called son of Jesse, which is a derogatory way of not really calling you who you are. I'm just going to reference you by your family relationship. It's a derogatory way to address somebody. He gets called son of Jesse by two people. Saul, when he's angry with him. When Saul's nice to him, he calls him his son, just his son. When he's angry, he calls him son of Jesse. And Doeg the Edomite, if you remember that guy. Right? That's who calls David son of Jesse. So this isn't a very good start for Nabal. And it just gets worse because Nabal refuses even to give anything to these men. He pretends like he doesn't know them at all. Um, and, and instead, in verse 11, all he seems to care about is my bread, my water, my meat that I butchered for my shears. Right? Me, 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 I, 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 I. Right? Nabal isn't giving anybody anything. He's selfish and he's greedy. So David's men do an about-face. There's actually a military term there. They turn right around and head right back to David. Right? And, and, and while things started with David sending a message of peace, repeated three times to Nabal back in verse 6, peace, 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 David's men come back to him. They tell him what's going on. And in verse 13, we have another repetition of three, but this time it's not peace, peace, peace. It's sword, sword, sword. Put on your swords, David said. So each man put on a sword, and David also put on a sword. Verse 13. And with that, 400 of David's men prepped to go send a different kind of message this time to Nabal. It's going to be all over for us. Now, as we just reflect on this, as things begin here, what really strikes us is the violence with which David is prepared to respond here. And it strikes us 
Because like we've been saying, just one chapter ago, it seemed like David was in the most justifiable position in the world to take out his greatest enemy violently. I mean, we all could have had sympathy for David if he would have killed Saul. It was self-defense, quite frankly. Saul just keeps hunting him. But David's heart was struck, remember? His conscience was pricked. He was brought back by what the Lord said. Saul was the Lord's anointed. You don't kill the Lord's anointed. So, so David refrained. He showed mercy to Saul. But now here we are with this Nabal character who in the grand scheme of what's going on is nothing more than this peripheral agitation. And Nabal might be rich, but, 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 but other than that, he's just a, he's just a nobody. He's not keeping David from the throne. It's not like we're told Nabal is one of those guys who is giving David's location up to Saul or something like that. Nabal is just a relative nobody. He's just a foolish, mean guy who won't give up, give up some food that he should. And David, who has just been extremely merciful, not only to his, to his greatest enemy, but to a very real threat to his life, now David's got his men all fitted out with swords, and they're going to take out Nabal and his group. In fact, in, in verse 22, a few lines down, David says, not one man will see mourning. And, and actually, it's, a, it's a, a little bit of a derogatory expression there. That, that phrase shows up four times in the Old Testament, and it, it actually says, not one who urinates on the wall will see mourning. And it's a way of speaking about the total annihilation of your enemy. So David, David, is, David is very spun up here. He's very They're all going to die. And he's just speaking in total death of my enemy terms here. Which, 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 again, kind of surprises us because, because it seems like such a big reaction. It, it seems like it would be a lot easier to overlook the offensive of a fool like Nabal than overlook the murderous plans of Saul. And David overlooked Saul's offense in the last chapter, totally left it to the Lord. But now here David is on this totally, uh, totally aggressive revenge mission. But, but again, this brings us back to what we were saying when we started, that there can be those categories that are just so plain and big for us. So, so clearly, David's ascent to the throne mattered in a unique way in his life of faith. And David's had a tender heart in that regard. He, he's trusting, he's yielding to the word of God. He's trusting that, that, that the Lord is the one who's going to take care of Saul, his enemy, and bring him to that place on the throne. David was prepared in that big and important situation with Saul to leave everything to the Lord. It's over to him. But then there's this peripheral situation. Who even cares about Nabal? He's, he's an offensive, annoying person. Uh, but, 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 but who really cares about him? And what is David doing? Well, David's saying, in effect, I'm not really concerned with the Lord in this particular category. Uh, that's not really coming into play here. This doesn't really have anything to do with my, my big life of faith and God's program for who I am, right? Uh, David's just thinking, we're going to go take this guy out because he's offended us so extraordinarily. We, he just needs to be gone. We, this isn't a faith category thing. This is just we're going to go take care of business kind of thing. And so, and so as we think about this, we, we're just able to put this in perspective with how things can come to us in our own life. Even as we think about maybe one week ago, one chapter ago in our life, if you like. Uh, maybe last week, uh, so much of life seemed sturdy in faith. Things that were big were plain and, and, and our conscience was tender and we were sensitive to what God is saying. Maybe around some of those things that were just really central and critical to our walk with Christ. There's been that renewed obedience and sensitivity and trust in some of those really big and necessary categories. But then this one peripheral agitation comes up. Maybe you're facing one right now. Maybe it's that one particular individual who's even offended you. Right? Or is that persistently aggravating situation that just won't go away? None of this is really, you know, like central to your life of faith. 
It's, it's just really annoying right now. It's aggravating. It's bad timing. It's off-putting. It's inconvenient. It's costing something you don't want it to cost. And as we can face these things, instead of stopping and trusting and reflecting on what it means to trust in the Lord with all my heart in all those circumstances, it just seems best to take, take things into my own hands and do it my own way. I'm just going to run with this one in a way that seems best to me. My way, my timing. We know this temptation. It is a strong temptation. The peripheral agitation. It doesn't seem central to our life of faith. And so it's easy to think of these things in categories totally outside other categories in which we've been considering obedience to the Lord. Trust in the Lord with most of my heart and in most of my ways acknowledge Him. But of course, that's not where we need to be. That's not where David needs to be. So as this passage goes on, we move from, from peripheral agitation to crucial intervention in verses 14 to 38. Crucial intervention. So, so now the narrator takes us back to Nabal's ranch. And, and we see that one of Nabal's servants goes to Abigail, Nabal's wife. No doubt this is not uh, the first time this sort of thing has had to happen given Nabal's foolishness. Probably they had to go talk to Abigail with great frequency. Guess what your husband's doing again? Right? So, so here he is. Nabal's done it again. We, we better go talk to Abigail. So, so, so just noting here that there is this unsung hero of the story, the servant, who goes and tells Abigail about this whole situation. He doesn't have a name, but thank goodness he did. Right? And the servant, what he does, he comes and he affirms uh, that David and his men ha have really been what they say they've been. These guys really did help us. They were like a wall around us when we were in the fields with the sheep, he says. And he tells Abigail then that when the men from David came to Nabal uh, for, for some rightly deserved food, Nabal screamed at them, which actually seems totally accurate. In fact, the Hebrew word translated scream there means just that. It, mean, it means to swoop down on somebody with shrieks. Swoop down on them with shrieks. So you go back later and you read Nabal's initial response in that tone of voice. Swooping down with shrieks. That's totally what Nabal must have been like. Right? He, he, he wouldn't give them anything. He swooped down on them with shrieks. We can just picture this guy, this whiny, screamy fool. Right? And the servant finishes telling Abigail what's going on. And he says, no doubt we're all in trouble because Nabal's a worthless fool. Apparently it's just... A house, common household knowledge. She can just say this to Abigail. Nabal's a worthless fool, and he's really got us into it this time. I mean, I mean, who messes with David? The guy obviously can fight. And then in verse 18 and on, Abigail responds extremely quickly and wisely. We're actually told three times now in this story about how Abigail moves quickly to bring about a resolution here. All right? so, so she gets a bunch of food. She doesn't tell her husband, thank goodness, right? And she goes out to meet David, who in verse 21 has just finished saying, I've guarded everything for this guy. No men with him will live until morning. There's that phrase. That's that phrase. Right? David just saying, I'm going to wipe everybody out. I've guarded everything. He's repaid me evil for good. They're all done. As Abigail shows up, David is ready to lead his men to kill Nabal and all, and, and all the men with him. And, and so into this extremely charged situation, Abigail shows up. She gets off her donkey quickly and then respectfully bows before David. I mean, I mean, you want to talk about bravery. Think about what this scene represents. So there's 400 men. They're hungry. 400 hungry men. One hungry man's bad news. 400 hungry men is certainly bad news, right? And they're all strapped for battle. And David's just finished giving them the no one lives till morning speech. So just imagine the group that's charged there. And Abigail shows up. Uh, shows up, she gets off her donkey, she bows down and starts addressing David. It's maybe the single most brave move in all battle narratives we ever have in the Old Testament. 
I mean, just imagine what that encounter must have been like. Smelly, hungry, angry warriors of David, and here comes the prudent and beautiful Abigail getting off and beginning to address David. Something like out of a movie. And she, she proceeds to, to speak very carefully and with great wisdom and, and persuasion with David. In fact, this is the longest recorded speech from a woman in, in the Bible. You can read it and reread it for homework. But, but basically, Abigail the wise, she begins by making three points. She says to David, don't pay attention to the worthless fool Nabal. He lives up to his name. He's stupid. Okay, so there's that. Just get that out there. And then, and then she says, don't avenge yourself by your own hand, David. And then she says, take this gift of the food and forgive your servant's offense because the Lord is certain to make a lasting dynasty for you because you fight the Lord's battles. And then in verse, uh, verses 29 and 31, she affirms the fact that David's life is safely protected with God and ultimately all of David's enemies will be slung away like stones in a sling. We recognize that metaphor, right? It's a reference back to the Goliath episode. So Abigail, she knows the story. She knows who David is. And in verse 31, she appeals to David's conscience because when the king takes his throne, she says, he shouldn't have needless bloodshed on his hands. So, so Abigail comes into this extremely heated situation and acts as David's conscience for him. She, she says, you don't want to do this. Wait for the Lord's resolution. He'll deal with your enemies. And David who you actually notice in all these narratives, he's, he, David's a good listener. He listens. David pays attention. And in verse 32, he blesses the Lord for sending Abigail to him. And he blesses Abigail's discernment. And then he blesses Abigail herself. So, so there's another set of three. We, and we need to keep these in mind as we, as we keep going through the passage here. Remember, three, three wishes for peace in the beginning. Three references to the swords being strapped on. There in the middle, and now Abigail has moved quickly three times as she intervenes, and then here we have the invocation of, of blessing three times. The three is a number that, that represents fullness and completion in, in, in the Hebrew mind, right? And we think about that, that's all throughout the scripture. We see that in many ways. You just think the resurrection on the third day is, is a great example. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We, we have these, these threes that show up in unique ways representing completion and fullness. So, so we've got this, this complete peace offered by, by David in the beginning. Right, peace, peace, peace. A huge offense, complete destructions coming from David. Sword, sword, sword. Right? A complete quickness on the part of Abigail. She's fast to react with wisdom, quickly, quickly, quickly. And then here David gives her this threefold blessing for her actions. So there's this completeness that runs all the way through this. So, so after Abigail's speech, David, he's very affected. And he sees his own folly as he blesses her. And then, and then in verse 33, David, seeing that Abigail prevented him from bloodshed, and avenging himself by his own hand, he says, in verse 34, David sees her as God's agent of, of grace in his life. So, so this has been a very crucial intervention for David. Uh, because when it comes to Saul, in, in one sense, we can say that David has it sorted. You know, no, no violence against Saul. I recognize God's purposes and these plans, all of that kind of stuff. But David almost fouled out, still guilty for blood on his hands. Because in this particular case, instead of trusting the Lord to fling away all his enemies like a stone from a sling... Instead of that, David thought he would just handle this by his own hand. I'll just take care of this on my own. And Abigail's wise intervention prevents David from, from sinning in this way. And as things go on, David's renewed faith proves well-founded because ultimately when Abigail goes home and, and once Nabal the fool sobers up from his present drinking binge, she, she'll tell him what happened. And in only a matter of 10 days, 
uh, the Lord will, will strike him down completely. Nabal's going to die. Right? Which, which we just have to note as an aside here that, 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 that the fool who ultimately disregards God's king does die, no matter who they are. Right, Richard, it doesn't matter. Right? And then we just have to see the, 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 the picture that's given to us here. There's no life in disregarding God's king, which, of course, is a central truth in, in understanding who Jesus is, just to make sure we, we, we get the connection that's made. The good news of God's king, Jesus, brings life, but to mock and reject God's king, Jesus, what does that bring? That brings the crumbling life, the, the, the fool's end. It brings death, crumbling down to death like Nabal here. But, but back to David, it's a, it's a critical lesson that's here for him because the Lord is not just to be trusted in the midst of the hardest and most central concerns of David's life, like his dealings with Saul and his rise to the throne. But the Lord is also the one to be trusted in all areas, in all situations, including peripheral irritations like Nabal. And then, so again, we can just check ourselves by this. We can ask. I ask me, as I ask you, are, are there areas like this where, where I'm simply doing things my way because it just doesn't seem like this is one of those categories of faith for me. I've got things compartmentalized in such a way that this is part of my Christian life over here, but these decisions over here are just mine, uh, just mine to make, really apart from any consideration of God's word or God's truth. Or I'm uh, just going to do things the way I want to do them over here. This is my faith part. Uh, this is the part where I just handle things on my own. It's very easy to fall into those, those kinds of practices, even just functionally, though we might never want to say that out loud. But we have to see from a place like this that nothing is peripheral like that as we serve the Lord in our life of faith. The Lord isn't, isn't, isn't one who's just interested in part, but he's interested in all, and he acts in all. And so, and so we can ask ourselves, are there areas of life like this where I'm just so concerned to, to, to remember the Lord is the Lord of, of that part, but maybe not this over here? And I need to be reminded to yield to him in the totality of things, from things big to small? Because ultimately, it's only through him that good purposes stand, which is what David is saying here. I need to make it all the way to the throne without any kind of blood guilt, without any kind of, of vengeful action on my part. That is all over to God. Right? So it's a lesson David needed to learn, and we need the reminder as well. And, and in fact, what's pictured here as the chapter ends is, is a stark reminder of just how dense we can be in these matters. So, so just wrap, we'll wrap this up real quickly. If you look at verses 39 and on, where we, where we move now from a per peripheral agitation to begin with. We have this crucial intervention on the part of Abigail, and we finish ultimately with a deficient application on the part of David. We have a deficient application. So if you look at that last part, David, here's what Nabal, uh, that Nabal has died. And David's thankful, you know, that the Lord restrained him from killing Nabal. And then David sends messengers uh, to, and I'm going to give you a literal translation here because it's important. Verse 40, David sent and spoke out for Abigail to take her as wife. So just keep that, file that away for a moment. And, and this actually doesn't really surprise us that there's a, a chemistry here that's now developed since Nabal has died. In fact, Abigail in her speech, she actually calls David Lord 14 times, which is not just a, a posture of reverence, but also a Hebraic way of speaking about a husband, right? And so, so she's, already, uh, she's already started this ball rolling, so to speak, and even the way she's been addressing David. And now that Nabal's dead, David sends and, and takes her as, as his wife. So, so that isn't necessarily a negative. There's, there's actually, it's kind of a sweet story in that way, except that we're then told a whole bunch of other stuff. Because not only does Abigail come to be his wife, but in verse 43, out of the blue, we're also told that David has also taken another woman named Ahinoam, and they both became David's wife. Okay, so 
we've got a little problem. And then we are reminded that David was already married to Saul's daughter, Michael, before this whole shenanigans with Saul trying to kill him began. And we're told right here that Saul in this time has taken his daughter, Michael, who had been David's wife, and Saul's actually undone that marriage and given Michael to this Paul T. fellow, whoever, whoever he is. And so we have to wonder, what, what is going on? Why are we told all this information about marriage here at the end? Well, what is going on with all of this? Well, well, well apart what seem, from what seems like a reasonable relationship between David and Abigail, we ultimately are, are meant to see that things are not good here. Because, because in this context, we understand that what's happening as we put all of this together, there are political moves being, uh, being deployed on the part of both David and Saul. In fact, David is actually acting in a kind of Saulish way here, and that not only is he taking Abigail for his wife, but he's also taken Ahinoam as his wife, two ladies from the tribes of Judah. And if we remember, the tribes of Judah are the particular groups, not only are they David's own family, but they are the particular groups who have been against David lately. They're the ones who have been, who have been out to get him in, in rebellion. They're the ones who turn him into Saul and so on. And so David, in this context, what we're seeing, especially when we put it together with what Saul is doing, David is seeking to form a kind of political situation where he can be supported by Judah instead of opposed by Judah. And we know this is the game going on because Saul has taken David's wife, Michael, who would have been aligned to the throne for David, right? He's the king's son-in-law. That's aligned to the throne. David's taken that away and given her to a man who's a Benjamite. He's actually in, in Saul's tribe. So he's tried to usurp that line to the throne that David would have had. So we see all this kind of political stuff going on, and, and, we're, and, and we're bothered by that because David, David he, he's not acting in a way that accords with God's purposes. We see that even in the polygamy that's represented here. From beginning to end, we know from the Scriptures that marriage is to be between one man and one woman. right? So David's already stepping outside of God's purposes for that. But then we're also troubled because of what this indicates about David as a king in general. He's not completely trusting in the Lord as he should to get him through the throne. He's, he's, he's going around God's good purposes in these other ways to politically possession, position himself. And one of the things that bothers us most of all is what we're told about the way he acquires these wives here. Because all through this passage, we've had these sets of three that have been uniquely meaningful. And then they've actually helped move the story along. So, so David sent with, with his message of peace in three, shalom, shalom, shalom. David's put on the swords in three, right? There, there's completion in each of these phases. Quickly, Abigail comes with her wisdom three times. There's completion in Abigail's uh, speed and wisdom. David blesses three times. There's wholeness in David's blessing to Abigail. And then we get here, and we're given <clears throat> two meaningful verbs, or two meaningful uses of the verb take, take. Excuse me, getting too excited about this. David takes Ahinoam, and David takes Abigail as his wife. Just two, incomplete. There's something wrong here, right? And it's wrong, we know, for two reasons. One, Samuel, the prophet who's dead, still speaks. What did Samuel say a king who is not God would do? Well, that king in chapter 8 is going to come, and he's going to take what's yours for himself. Here we have Samuel's prophetic words still speaking. David is the one who's taking. And not only is David taking, but the exact same language they're used to speak about David taking Abigail as his wife is going to be used later on in 2 Samuel where David goes and takes Bathsheba, the, the, the ultimate expression of sin during his reign. And so we get to the end of this and we think, David, David, you're not, you're not learning. You're not quite putting these things together that you need to put together. 
And we can identify with that. Because as we go through our own life, we have these reminders, we have these instances of learning to trust in God in this category and learning to trust in God in this category. And then we falter over here and we feel our failings and we see these things start to crumble. Ultimately, all the wives of David are going to be trouble for him as he goes about these things in the wrong way. We see the failing that's represented here. But in this failing, we still recognize that there's hope. Because as David fails, we're reminded that he's not the guy we're ultimately waiting for. David's not the ultimate king who's going to bring the rescue the people of God need. Ultimately, David is pointing forward to a better king. He's pointing forward to the better one who's going to come, who is going to be entirely faithful in all situations and ultimately be the redemption that we need. In fact, we have that as Peter speaks about the significance of who Jesus is in 1 Peter chapter 2, where, where Peter comes and he says, Jesus did not commit sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. Okay, what do you mean, Peter? Jesus didn't commit sin, no deceit. Well, he explains it. When he was insulted, he did not insult in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. So he wasn't doing David's stuff. He didn't threaten, but entrusted himself to the one who judges justly. Jesus in his ministry trusted perfectly in his earthly ministry. And then, and then, you know what the very next line says about Jesus? He himself bore our sins in his body. So, so in all things, Jesus shows perfect uh, reliance upon God the Father. And, th and that's not just exemplary as in an example that we should follow, but that's where our hope is ultimately found because we fall foul of that all too often. I'll trust in the Lord here, but I'll take things into my own hands over here. Right? No, trust in the Lord with all your... And when we fail, understanding in all our ways, acknowledge Him and He'll make His path straight. And when we fail... We look to the one who's never failed and who extends his hand of grace to us, picking us up, restoring us, renewing us, putting us again and again on the path of life. This is what the better king who's come con uh, continues to do for us. Because while David was a good king, uh, we're not too long into this when we realize that he can't be the one we ultimately need. He's not the one for the people of God. We need the better king. We need the one who, who calls us to, to live this life of faith, who enables us to trust, who paid the price for our sins when we fail. And so, and so in all of that, we're just brought to reconsider, uh, reconsider our posture of heart in this passage. Am I oriented toward the living God in all the ways of my life? Am I trusting in Him? And when I fail, as I experience those failures, is that something that's going to completely crush me? Or is that something that's going to send me to the cross, recognizing that Jesus is the one who brings me redemption, who brings me restoration, who brings me renewal for those failings as I face them? So it's a passage that's meaningful to us and it restores our hope and it also compels our trust. Let's pray together. Father, we are thankful for your word and we pray that we be renewed by it this morning. You lift us up in faith. We know we need your truth. Your word is truth. And we know we need to live by your truth. It reveals your will and your purposes and the hope that's found in Christ. So uh, bring life to our hearts today uh, through your word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.